Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 83. Humoral responses after second and third SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in patients with immune-mediated inflammatory disorders on immunosuppressants cohort study. This was published on behalf of the T2B exclamation point immunity against SARS-CoV-2 study group in the Lancet Rheumatology in March of 2022. I think this is a very important paper and came as something of a surprise to me. So I wanted to talk about it and a paper that is related today. So let's dive right in. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, myself and many rheumatologists have been very concerned about our patients with uh, systemic rheumatic diseases. There's a number of problems. The first being that systemic rheumatic diseases often cause comorbidities, and we know that comorbidities are associated with worse outcomes from SARS-CoV-2. We also know that many of these patients are on immunocompromising medications, which may themselves result in a less robust response to uh, COVID-19 and perhaps a worse or more severe outcome. And then more recently, after we got a number of very, very effective vaccinations against SARS-CoV-2, we were worried that perhaps the presence of immunosuppressing medications would blunt the effectiveness of these vaccinations for people who were taking them. From this came a line that I've always been somewhat skeptical of, which is that you know the vaccinations won't work for people with rheumatic diseases, or in the more common parlance, the immunocompromised We've kind of created this big bucket of immunocompromised people, and we've told them that the vaccines probably won't work as well for them. Now, it's worth noting that in in some cases, this is true, but I've always been worried that in many cases, it was not. We haven't seen this in the past for a lot of our medications, and I don't think there was any reason to believe that a highly effective vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 would not work for someone who's on one of our less immunosuppressing medications. But until now, there haven't been a lot of good data either direction. And I think many of us have been erring on the side of caution here, which is very, very reasonable. And that's the case that that's the course that I've also taken myself. But today, I think we have enough data to say that for many of our patients with rheumatic diseases, the expected response to vaccination against SARS-CoV-2 is the same as for the general population. So that's what I'm going to talk about today, starting with this paper. Now, the design of this study was interesting. It was a cohort study of patients in the Netherlands um, who had to be over 18 years of age and had immune-mediated inflammatory disorders. Now, as controls, they recruited patients with immune-mediated inflammatory disorders who were not on systemic immunosuppressants and healthy controls. Healthy controls could not have any active or prior autoimmune oncologic or hematologic disease, and they couldn't be receiving any treatments um, that were immunosuppressive. Clinical data were collected, and critically, serum samples were collected. They were sent at baseline and 28 days after vaccination, vaccination, both the first and the second. And then for the third vaccination, they were collected on the day of vaccination, then day 7, then day 28. SARS-CoV-2 antibodies were tested um, for a number of different ways. I don't want to get into the specifics of these assays. I highly encourage you to read the paper, uh, both if you are interested in this and just as a general matter. The primary objective was to look into humoral SARS-CoV-2 vaccine responses. Now, I think this is a critical fact. When we talk about whether or not people respond to the vaccine, we just talk about these antibody titers. On the one hand, this is totally reasonable because these anti-titers are very important. I mean, these antibodies are how one of the main mechanisms by which your immune system fights off uh, infections. 
Now, the flip side, though, is that it isn't the only part of your immune system. And we've known this forever. In patients on rituximab, where we dramatically reduce their ability to form antibodies, they do have a higher rate of severe infections, and they are more likely to get infections, but it never reduces their immune system to zero. And many of these patients live completely normal lives. And so at, at baseline, our assumption should be that antibodies aren't the only thing that matters. I'll get to more on that later. And in addition to this, they set 15% is what they consider to be a clinically meaningful or clinically important uh, difference in antibody titers between, you know, cases or controls. I mean, that's fine. That's reasonable. But this isn't like a validated outcome. What really matters to me is how patients actually do. And you know, this is all kind of just guesswork, to be totally honest. Now, patients were included if they had had SARS-CoV-2 or if they had not. Majority of the cohort wound up being people who did not have it. Speaking of that cohort, between February 2nd and August 1st of 2021, they included over 3,000 participants in their cohort, over 2,300 of whom were included in this analysis. This is just astonishing. One of the most frustrating things about the age of COVID-19 has been the number of redundant and multi multi multiplicative studies that have just asked the same question, underpowered in small cohorts, and have just been totally unable to answer it. And let me tell you, I have been part of the problem. I have participated in projects like this, and I've always meant the best, but it's frustrating because a lot of these small studies can't answer the question. And that's why I think this paper is so exciting because this is actually a cohort that's capable of answering the question, does a patient with a rheumatic disease on immunosuppressant respond to vaccination? There were a lot of patients here. Now, they were the majority were female, which we often see. The majority received the Pfizer uh, vaccination, uh, and the majority were on one immunosuppressant, which is interesting. I think a lot of our patients are on multiple immunosuppressing medications, so that obviously will increase the risk. And there were a number of different diseases. I mean, 14% had rheumatoid arthritis, um, but then there were also spondyloarthritis. There were 10% with lupus. Then 16% with Crohn's disease, 13% with MS, 6% with atopic dermatitis. So it was kind of a, a mixed bag of actual diseases. And I think that's important when you're viewing this study, which is not only rheumatic diseases, but I don't think there's a strong reason to believe that an immunocompromising medication would affect someone with RA differently than IBD necessarily when it comes to uh, COVID-19 uh, antibody response. So what did they find? Well, in the control group, 97.2% of patients seroconverted after vaccination. So it's worth noting that not 100% of the controls seroconverted. What were the numbers among our patients? Corticosteroids, 94%. Uh, IVIG, 94%. Methotrexate, 97%. Purine antagonists, 96%. TNF inhibitors, 99.5%. Ustekinumab, 97.8%. I mean, this table... Just, I did a double take when I saw it. I couldn't believe how good the serial conversion rates were among patients on these drugs. They also calculated risk ratios for all of our therapies. And across the board, with one notable exception, which I'll talk about later, uh, there was just no difference. It looked completely the same as far as serial conversion is concerned. I, I think that's incredibly good news. Now, when you actually look at the titers themselves, there were some modest differences. So patients who got methotrexate had a smaller fold increase in titers. Although if you actually look at the graphs, the vast majority were over a number where we think they would be creating neutralizing antibodies. So this is probably a numerical difference that, in my opinion, would be unlikely to result in a practical difference for a patient. The same was true for TNF inhibitors. So for a number of our diseases, I think it's fair to say that the response will be reduced, though it is certainly not fair to say that there will not be a response because across the board, zero conversion rates were the similar or the same to controls. 
Now, in one of their secondary analyses, they also looked at MMF, which was reduced, 82.6%, and JAX, which is a little bit down, 89.7%, and hydroxychloroquine, which predictably, 97%. There's no difference for people who are on hydroxychloroquine. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's like a small signal for JAX, obviously nothing for hydroxychloroquine, and there's a moderate signal for mycophenolate. Now, before I go on, we really need to talk about rituximab because anti-CD20 therapies are obviously a place where we're more worried. We're giving a drug that is explicitly targeting the ability to form antibodies. And for CD20 therapies, there was definitely a reduction in both seroconversion. So as apart from those very high numbers for other drugs, uh, for CD20s, it was 30.5%. And titers themselves, the numbers were just smaller across the board. There was still a group of people who seroconverted and who generated adequate titers. So this is not that people who are on CD20s don't respond at all, but this group clearly responded less well. Now, as I said earlier, they did look at third doses, and it was interesting. Now, for most of the drugs, the third dose didn't substantially boost titers because, truthfully, for most of the patients, the titers were good after the first and second dose. Now, that's not true for mycophenolate, which, as I said, there are some reduced titers. But the third, the booster really did seem to help with mycophenolate. People went from 50% or 6% seroconverting to 89.5% seroconverting. So a big take-home from this study for me is that patients on mycophenolate are very likely to benefit from boosters. And that is a group where you should really, really be thinking about boosters. I have been recommending boosters for all my patients on immunocompromising drugs. So I don't think this would change too much of how I've been behaving. But for people on mycophenolate, I'm very much going to reinforce that. And I think that this is the group where we've probably made a big difference by getting boosters out there. Now for CD20 therapies, the booster response wasn't as impressive. It was not statistically significant. It went from 37% to 46%. So it did go up. Uh, and I imagine there is some benefit to boosting people on rituximab. I have been strongly encouraging boosters in that population, and I will continue to do so after this. Now, the big caveat to this study is that they didn't really show what I really care about, which are clinical outcomes. So let's talk about a study that did this. This is another article that was published in April uh, of, of 2022 in Lancet Rheumatology, and it was entitled Vaccine Effectiveness Against SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Severe Outcomes Among Individuals with Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Diseases Tested Between March 1st and November 22nd in Ontario, Canada, a Population-Based Analysis. Now, this is a really interesting study. This was a test-negative study design, which is one way to assess vaccine effectiveness in a cohort. The idea of this design is that you take everyone who is tested for disease, in this case, COVID-19, and you say, um, the people who tested positive are going to be our cases, and we're going to treat the people who tested negative as our controls. So you're building a case control study. And one nice thing, one of my rules for case control studies is that you want your cases and controls to be coming from the same population as much as possible. And in this case, if you're looking at the same centers, which they did in this study, and the same testing, which you know they, they did, you, you may be able to approximate that pretty well. Now, the caveat for me in this design and in this era is that there's a lot of people getting tested for travel and things like that. And so I just I imagine there are systemic differences that relate to the people who tested negative. I suspect that those people are healthier. I also suspect that those people were more likely to get tested and therefore more likely to be engaging in health conscious behaviors. And so it, I, I do think that there's some risk of systemic bias in here. Which direction will that bias go? 
Well, if your control group is generally healthier and generally avoiding SARS-CoV-2 and generally less likely to have severe outcomes, that will make the treatment group look worse. So it will probably make your effectiveness numbers worse than they otherwise would have been. So keep that in mind when we're thinking about test negative control designs in the era of COVID-19. So in this study, they looked at all people in the general population of Ontario. Um, they had a very large cohort of people with systemic rheumatic diseases. They had patient-level data, but this was an EMR study, so it was based on um, a diagnosis codes. They included patients with rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriasis, and IBD. And then, critically, if you remember the inclusion criteria range, none of these people got Omicron. People in long-term care facilities were excluded, which I think makes sense. Those people get tested a lot. They're a little more frail. That kind of amplifies the issues that I just discussed, so reasonable. And then the index eight was, was, was the first positive test for someone who tested positive and some random negative test for people who always tested negative. That seems reasonable. No objections there. Severe outcomes were also assessed in the study, which is why I want to talk about this along with the last one. This was defined as admission to the hospital or death. That makes total sense to me. That is also how I would consider a severe outcome. And note that because this is more of an EHR study, you have to use that because you, you may not have uh, more granular data about how patients were doing. The statistical analyses were all reasonably appropriate, so let's just dive right into what they saw. This was a very large study. So they had 36,000 people with RA, uh, something like 7,000 people with ankylosing spondylitis. They had almost 50,000 people with psoriasis and something like 30,000 people with inflammatory bowel disease. This is a big cohort. Now, if you look at the baseline characteristics, a couple things that are worth noting. Uh, the first is that most people had only been tested once, which I found a little bit surprising. I feel like I've been tested repeatedly, but uh, you know, many of those tests were done at home and wouldn't have qualified here necessarily. Um, and then comorbidities were actually quite common. The majority of people had a comorbidity, which is you know a critical risk factor for um, severe outcomes from COVID-19. Overall adjusted vaccine effectiveness for two doses of against SARS-CoV-2 was 83% in people with RA, 89% in people with ankylosing spondylitis, 84% in people with psoriasis, and 79% among people with inflammatory bowel disease. That is really, really good. If you look at the actual studies, you know, vaccine effectiveness was over 90%, but in real world data from this time period, vaccine effectiveness among the general population was around 90%. So we're hitting numbers almost at effectiveness for the general population. So these, these papers are mutually reinforcing, right? I mean, this is a parsimonious study where we say that how did people with rheumatic diseases respond to vaccination? Well, they responded about the same as healthy controls. And then at a population level, what did outcomes and, and responses look like between people who had rheumatic diseases or were healthy controls? And the answer is about the same. I find this very encouraging. And like I said, they did look at uh, severe outcomes, which in the studies were always a little bit better than symptomatic outcomes. The vaccines are really good at preventing severe outcomes. And uh, th that was true here as well. For people with rheumatoid arthritis, vaccine effectiveness was 92%. For people with ankylosing spinalitis, 97%, 92% for psoriasis, and 94% for IBD. Vaccine effectiveness across the board was very good for people who were immunocompromised. There are obviously a number of caveats to this study and the first one that I talked about. You know, in this study, uh, this is a EHR data. It's a case control study. I do think the bias in this study would actually cut against the effectiveness of the vaccines. So if anything, I think they might be a little bit better, but I don't necessarily have data to support that. At the end of the day, I think that my take home is that the vaccinations work very well for people who are immunocompromised from rheumatic diseases. Let me give a couple quick caveats. The first is obviously that rituximab is a medication where this is not necessarily true. 
patients on rituximab, had a much lower rate of seroconversion and lower titers. Mycophenolate, this is also true, but to a lower, lesser degree. This comes to the most important thing for me, which is clinical outcomes for patients on rituximab. I'm starting to see publications along those lines, and I think that this is critical because for this group of patients, we're not going to be able to assess how well vaccines worked with humoral responses so much. We really need to get into other aspects of the immune system, such as how T cells are responding. So that comes to my last point, which is that I think we need to move beyond humoral responses when we're assessing vaccine effectiveness. We need to talk about the immune system as more holistically, and we need to talk about clinical outcomes over everything else. Another important caveat is that people who have seen these data have responded somewhat negatively. There have been a lot of people who have said that they're worried that this is going to reduce concern. I understand where they're coming from. I think it has been hard throughout the pandemic to encourage health behaviors that we would like people to engage in. But one of the most important ways to convince people that, that you are correct is to just be honest. And I think honestly grappling with these data are very important. The bottom line is that many patients with rheumatic diseases appear to respond just as well to vaccination as people without, and I think we should be telling them that and letting them adjust their risk preferences as, 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 they, as they like to. Now, the second thing is that patients with rheumatic diseases often have comorbidities, and comorbidities are a big risk factor. Things like diabetes and hypertension and a lot of the problems that glucocorticoids cause. So this is another reminder to me to try to limit glucocorticoids and the sort of medications that cause comorbidities as much as humanly possible. I have also made efforts to stretch rituximab, but I mean, the truth is that a lot of people are on rituximab for a very good reason. And in many cases, people's risk of rituximab of SARS-CoV-2 will, will be outweighed by their risk of recurrence of ankyovasculitis or something along those lines. So I don't think this is a medication that we can give up entirely. Rather, we should be doing efforts to limit its use, which we already should have been doing, and we should be considering spacing it when able, which is something that I think a lot of us have been doing. In summary, I find these data very encouraging. I think it's time to start saying that for most people with rheumatic diseases, they are going to respond the same to vaccination as the general population. I think this is an important message because I think encouraging vaccination is one of the most important things that we can do. It has been the thing that has really turned this pandemic around in many ways. I understand why people want to keep concern levels high because we're all worried about bad outcomes from COVID-19. But I also think that being honest about how well the vaccines work is a way to encourage vaccination. And I actually think that at a population level, talking about the vaccines in a positive light is just a good thing to be doing. So I'm going to be using these data to encourage my patients to get vaccinated if they haven't been already and to encourage boosters, especially for patients on mycophenolate and rituximab. And I think that in the future, we'll have a lot more data about clinical outcomes. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to weigh in yourself. Uh, follow me at ebroom.com. I also have a newsletter. You can find that um, from my Twitter bio at ebroom. Just click on the link to the newsletter where I discuss this and other issues. I would love to hear from you there. Thanks so much for tuning in and have a great week. 